And good morning. You can call or text our studio line in just a bit, and we'll get some financial questions answered. 651-461-9226. But in the meantime, now here's the founder of Wealth Enhancement Group and financial advisor, Bruce Helmer. Good morning, Bruce. Danny, I just got to say it's good to be with you again. Even if it's remote, it's good to hear your voice. Uh, I told somebody once that uh, working with Danny's like uh, sitting down in your favorite chair that you've had for 20 years. It's still comfy, and uh, so it's good to be with you. Danny, some of our listeners know, um, but, but many probably do not. You and I started this gig together back in January of 1997, and here we are again. It's good to be with you. Well, and you as well, Bruce. I know you're a lot younger than I because you started uh, this show when you were 15. I was 20, I think, at the time. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the long time, but it's it's great to be here. We wish Susie well, but uh, it is great to be back uh, here in this particular chair. What are we going to be doing today on the show, Bruce? Yeah, really quickly, we have a special guest I'll introduce in a second, but I just want to make mention, we were a little older than that, but we both had young toddlers of uh, almost the same age that are now grown men, and when I think about that, it kind of blows my mind how fast the time has gone. Yeah, uh, anyway, I, I, good to be with you. And you as <laughs> good well. Good to be Bruce. with you again. Thank you. So, Danny, as you know, usually uh, joining me to do this uh, is Peg Webb. Peg's got a well-deserved week off. And we're very, very fortunate to have in her place uh, Gary Quinzel. Gary has uh, been in the financial services industry, been running money, making decisions about portfolios for nearly 20 years. His title with Wealth Enhancement Group is Director of Portfolio Consulting. Um, he's got a very impressive history of uh, things he's done, places he's been before coming to Wealth Enhancement Group. He writes the monthly commentary for our, uh, our, our quarterly newsletters, which clients all, all of our clients get. He's, he's a certified financial planner, but also he's a chartered financial analyst and anyone that knows our industry knows how tough that designation is to get and how smart you have to be to, to get the CFA designation. Gary's here today to help lead our discussion. We do this uh, generally on a quarterly basis to look at the things that we think are market movers and to talk a little bit about where the market has been and where we think it's going. But I know one of the first things Gary's going to say is nobody knows for sure where the market's going to go in the short term. Gary, thank you for joining us today. We appreciate it. We're lucky to have you. Good morning, Bruce. Uh, thank you for having me. Happy to be on the show. So my, my, my clients are, are, are saying the following things to me a lot. They're, they're, they're expressing surprise uh, that the market has continued to do well after we went through this period of uh, global pandemic, uh, very contentious, unprecedented, historical presidential election and racial and social unrest. Those are any one of those things are things that could have torpedoed the economy, torpedoed the stock market, yet it did not, or at least has not yet. And then because of that, a lot of my clients are very pessimistic, saying this thing's got to retract soon. It's got to crash. So you take a much more analytical approach. You look at seven specific things to see what's going on there. And then based on those things, you, you make a determination, again, of what we think might happen based on something other than just 
somebody's feeling that it's got to go down soon. Um, you want to talk about those things? Where do you want to start? Sure, absolutely. Um, so we, I, I hear you. We hear that skepticism all the time. And the way we think about things is we break down the market uh, into these seven market movers. And I'm going to start with global growth and work my way through a few others. But I just want to talk about some of this phenomenal growth that we're still in the middle of experiencing. And despite all of those headwinds that you outlined, we are still experiencing faster global growth than we've seen in, in almost 30 years. Uh, we're on track for roughly 6% GDP growth in 2021 and forecast for just under 4% GDP growth here in the U.S. in 2022. Now, if that is realized, we'd still be on a pace that's stronger than the last 20 years. So there is reason to believe, despite the fact that equities have doubled in a three-year span, which hasn't happened since the late 90s, that given the global growth, that should support higher prices. Now, I'm going to get to some of the headwinds in a second, but if we think about a thing from a global perspective, it's not just a U.S. phenomenon. We are still projecting almost 4% growth uh, year over year uh, going forward, uh, and that's going to be expanded across developed international as well as emerging markets. So there is a lot of growth out there, uh, despite the headwinds that we're experiencing from the pandemic and the ongoing uncertainty with the Omicron uh, uh, virus. So we are encouraged by that. We also are noticing that because of all the stimulus that was uh, given out uh, in 2020 and 2021, household savings are at phenomenal levels, all right? And that has been supporting a lot of the growth, a lot of the consumer spending, which uh, as many of us know, comprises almost 70% of GDP here in the U.S. So. There's really an extra $3 trillion in extra household savings largely in due to that fiscal payments that, that were given out. We also know, of course, that the Fed balance sheet has expanded tremendously, uh, roughly $8.5 trillion currently. And now while they are tapering their purchases right now, all that extra money has made its way into the financial markets. And it's made its way towards risky assets. For one simple reason, equities, as expensive as they are, are still more attractive relative to other asset classes. But from a growth standpoint, I, I can't say enough about the, the ongoing growth. And we should see slower growth next next year. Uh, but last year uh, that we experienced, uh, we should not expect to, that to repeat in 2022 for a number of reasons. Um, earnings per share, if you, if you think of it from a corporate standpoint, that grew 45% year over year. There's no way that's going to repeat. Average analysts are expecting somewhere closer to like 9%, which would still be stronger than an average year, but, but strong nonetheless. So if we see that, we'll see much more modest growth. We're, of course, going to see inflation uh, affect growth. We're, of course, going to see uh, uh, labor concerns and wage growth uh, affect uh, the, the bottom line. So we are projecting more growth but just not at the growth level that we saw in 2021. Hey, Gary, I have a question, and, and that, that's really good stuff. And, and, I, and I, I'm aware of most of that, not all of it. I just picked up a few tidbits from you that I didn't know. I don't think most of our listeners know what you just said. But here's a question, and I'm just, and a little bit devil's advocate, but it's a question that people ask me. You, you, you talked about the stimulus, and – that's a bipartisan issue. Both Republicans and Democrats realized that with people suffering economically through no fault of their own because of COVID, because of the pandemic, the government stepped in with money and, and had these stimulus packages. 
And almost everybody agrees it was the right thing to do, but now people are concerned. I'm, I'm having clients say, we can't keep printing money and, 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 that we, and then giving it away and when we don't have it. This is going to come home to roost at some point in time. What do you say to people that, that offer that up, that, that criticism or that concern? It's a very controversial topic, as you pointed out, and I think you can see it from both sides of the coin. On one hand, stimulus was absolutely needed, especially during the pit of the pandemic. The lower income earners that predominantly lost their jobs needed those payments. But what we ended up seeing was a lot of the fiscal pay, the, uh, stimulus you know, just made its way into risky assets. It got invested in the, into the stock market, and you could, uh, you could argue that it disproportionately benefited those who had jobs already. And now, as we're looking forward, there's no question at all that that additional stimulus has contributed. It's not the only factor, but it's one of many factors that has contributed to the, the inflation levels that are the highest they've been in 40 years. So we have to think very, very carefully going forward about how much more stimulus we want to put into the economy at a time where we are continuing to have supply bottlenecks. We are continuing to have labor uh, shortages. There will continue to be issues. Uh, uh, stemming from overseas shipping problems because of China's no-COVID policy. So we have to think very, very carefully about how much stimulus we need, what is the right amount, and whether or not we should be putting more into the economy. I'm not necessarily taking one side or the other. I'm just saying we need to be very, very cognizant about the impact because it's become very, very clear that the temporary inflation surge that used to be called transitory is going to be around for a little bit longer, and it's going to have an impact on equities and, and bonds, of course, as well. You've mentioned inflation a couple of times. Now, in fact, you've, you've mentioned it's the worst it's been in 40 years. I want to go there next, and we can't, you know, we can't do this topic without talking about inflation because, again, my clients are asking me about it. But one more thing about stimulus or federal debt. When clients talk to me about debt, and fortunately or unfortunately, um, I think that becomes uh, kind of a, a political talking point. And, and whatever party is not in power points to the party in power and says they're spending too much, and both sides do it. So, again, I'm an equal opportunity criticizer of both political parties here. But, but what I tell clients is the debt number alone is not what we're concerned about when we do this type of analysis. We look at the debt-to-GDP ratio and it's possible that even though our debt has gone up, if our GDP has gone up and the ratio gets better, the debt is less of a concern. Is that a fair way to answer that, or am I just being overly optimistic? I don't. I think you are correct. I think that uh, it is a very accurate way to look at it uh, and to consider debt as a ratio of GDP. And, and let's face it, the U.S. is a net importing economy. We should. We are going to run uh, with a debt balance, and it is. Certainly problematic, and we need to address the ballooning balance sheet and the ballooning debt that we have in this country. Uh, but that is unfortunately a problem that for another day. Now, you brought up an interesting point. Both parties blame the other for the debt, but yet they both seem to add debt in the same manner. And so, uh, as a country, I think we do need to be uh, a little more aware uh, of that, not to get political. But I think when I look at the debt to GDP ratio, um, that that makes me a little more. Uh, positive in the fact that GDP is growing at the highest rate, as I mentioned earlier. Um, all right, let's talk about inflation. Before we do, really quickly, though, if you joined us late and you're waiting to hear Peg Webb's lovely voice, Peg's got the week off, but we're fortunate that we've got Gary Quinzel with us. 
Gary's the director of portfolio consulting at Wealth Enhancement Group, and we're talking about the seven market movers that we look uh, look at in, in anticipation of what we think is going to happen in 2022. Gary, we've uh, danced around it enough. Let's talk about inflation. Uh, yeah, let's do it. Inflation, that's certainly the elephant in the room. And, and there's no question it's garnering headlines everywhere and it's affecting our daily lives. And you, you can't look anywhere without seeing, um, you know, higher sticker prices, empty shelves. Uh, the housing market is on fire. Uh, it's literally affecting every aspect uh, of our lives and, of course, the financial markets. And um, for those of you who are hoping for a reprieve in the short run, um, don't hold your breath. It is likely to get worse before it gets better. Uh, and that is because while we are seeing some evidence of uh, easing uh, at some of the, the, the supply disruptions and the shipping indices, uh, we're still at extremely elevated levels across both of those factors. So uh, as I mentioned a, a moment ago as well, that China's no COVID policy will continue to have significant impact on a go-forward basis, probably throughout 2022, because of the disruptions in the in the supply chain. So I would expect, uh, we have uh, the print the other day on PCE was 7%. I would expect that to get higher before it gets better. I would expect that to remain elevated. But as we look out a little further, second half of 2022, um, if we can remain on our current tra trajectory of improving supply chain dynamics, we could see some relief in the second half of this year. But we also have to think about what are the structural things which are not going to resolve themselves in a quick manner. And first, first and foremost, we have to talk about wage growth. And that has been uh, absolutely on fire and at its highest level uh, in several decades. But an important factor of that is that if you look at the wage growth if you calculate the median wage growth, it's much different from the average wage growth. And a reason for that is the vast, vast majority of the wage growth came at the lower end of the pay scale, which from a societal uh, perspective is a great thing, right? You could argue that it's long overdue, but from an economic impact, it doesn't have the same structural long-term uh, effect uh, to inflation. So a lot of that was based on the base effect of people getting laid off and coming back into the workforce and then having the ability to change jobs. Keep in mind, we're also experiencing historically high quit rates, which has enabled people to get increased um, their wages. The wage growth of people that have left the workforce and come back or quit relative to those who have stayed in their jobs, there's a, there's a, a, a very wide dispersion there. So while we are seeing substantial wage growth today, which is one of the leading uh, contributors to permanent inflation, we also expect that to subside in the latter half of this year. Another really important component uh, to more structural inflation has to do with commodities. Uh, and, and anyone who followed uh, the markets last year knows that commodities were one of the strongest performing asset classes, particularly for energy uh, and industrial metals. Uh, we, are, we have seen uh, some uh, leveling off there, and the fourth quarter was a little softer uh, for commodities relative to um, equities. But that is another thing that we're going to have to watch very, very closely, especially across copper uh, and, and other metals that are, that are used for industrial purposes. Uh, but we definitely have a, a, a cautious look on, on inflation. That is the one of our seven market movers that we uh, put as a moderate 
negative uh, outlook. Uh, and that's because, as I mentioned, we do expect it uh, to get a little worse before it gets better. Okay, let's talk about interest rates. Absolutely, yeah. So interest rates, uh, our perspective on interest rates has changed uh, substantially uh, over the last six months. It wasn't that long ago when, you know, no one was expecting the first rate hike until 2023. And now the argument uh, amongst market participants is, are we going to see three or four? Uh, And if you looked at uh, last uh, Friday's uh, retail uh, report, which came out extremely negative, uh, it was a major disappointment. A lot of people chalked that up to uh, uh, retail spenders adjusting to the higher inflation and stopping their spending. People down ticked their their interest rate expectations. But here we are. We're now in a situation where we are expecting our first rate hike probably in March and possibly another one in June. And if you look at the, 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 the CME group, which, which projects the probabilities of interest rate hikes based upon what's going on in the Fed futures market, they're talking at least three hikes by the end of this year. So what does that mean? That means we're now in a situation where we're going to see uh, some flattening of the yield curve because on the long end, we're seeing the 10-year. You know, it's gone up, but it hasn't gone up at, at the rate of the two-year. So we are seeing some bearish flattening right there. Um, looking out on, from a fixed income perspective, you know, you have to be somewhat skeptical about the prospect um, when for, for, for some base fixed income when you're expecting these, tri- uh, these interest rate hikes and they're priced in. doesn't mean we're bailing out on fixed income by any degree, but we have to acknowledge that it is going to be a challenging environment uh, for, for the fixed income universe because we're expecting higher rates on the short end. And we look, when we look out on the, longer, on the longer end, we know that rates overseas are still very low, so there could be uh, some in- influence there. Uh, that will keep the 10-year uh, from, from rising too high. But we don't have extremely high projections on the 10-year. We could see it you know, go up to around the 2% range. Uh, but on the short end is where we see the majority of the increases. And that is going to be driven a lot by growth. It's going to be driven by inflation expectations. Uh, and we're going to have to see where we go from here. But right now, the market is priced in more, and we have to uh, adjust for that. Gary and Danny, uh, I know we're less than three minutes to a break. And, and Gary, I don't know the next one, uh, the next market mover, uh, style and factor expectations. That's one that's kind of unique that, that a lot of people don't understand. I don't want to want you to feel rushed to get that in, Gary. Let's spend a little bit more time on interest rates just for a minute or two. Um, I've been telling people, Gary, literally for years, interest rates can't stay this low. They're going to go up, and I've been wrong consistently. It's finally happening or going to happen because of, uh, in part, because of inflation. But the other thing about interest rates, if you could speak to this, you know, it's a two-edged coin from the standpoint that borrowers want low interest rates. Savers don't want, they, they want higher interest rates. So interest rates, whether they're up or down, how does that overall impact the market and the overall economy? What is it good to have low interest rates or high interest rates, or does it depend upon other other factors? It's the old Goldilocks scenario, right? Not too hot, not too cold. Can't we just have three and a half percent and stay there and not move? Um, that's a great question, Bruce. And I, the way I see it, you're right. Lower interest rates, obviously good for business, good for good for investors, good for anyone looking to put money to work. There's certainly a, uh, a disproportionate impact based upon who you're talking to. Are you talking about young investors or, 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 or older folks that are or people that are relying upon their income? Um, it's a really interesting question, and I don't think there's any one set right answer. 
uh, but you have to find uh, the, the right mix. And that's what the Fed talks about, you know, the, the, the Fed's neutral rate. In a perfect world, it's a conceptual thought. What is the perfect interest rate? Uh, and if you look further out, uh, way back when, when there was, you know, we had much, much higher interest rates, we had super high inflation, we've been, we're just in a completely different dynamic than we, we have been over the last 10 or 20 years. We saw interest rates fall from 1981 all the way to the mid-20-teens, uh, and now we're in a situation like you. I've been projecting interest rates to go higher for some time, and it does finally seem like they're going to go up. Now, what is that magic level? I think it's largely going to be dependent upon what's happening overseas. It's going to be dependent upon what the next disruption is. And I think you need to have a level that benefits uh, investors and savers. So, you know, can the market live with uh, 2% yield, 3% yield, 4% yield? Absolutely. We have before. We will going forward. It's just going to be a matter of adjusting. Is that going to be adequate for savers? Well, the answer is maybe. And a big problem Gary, Gary, we need a break. Danny, we need a break, right? Yes, we do. Well, let's do that. We have much more show to come. In fact, let me give you our uh, number, our studio. You can call or text 651-461-9226. That works for either your phone call or your text. 651-461-9226. Back with more of your money. And you can call or text in your financial questions to Bruce at 651-461-9226. We'll also get you a phone number and a website if you think of something midweek. Again, call or text 651-461-9226. And again, more of your money. Here's Bruce Elmer. Thanks, Danny Long. Again, we're fortunate to have with us today uh, Gary Quinzel. Gary is, uh, or Quinzel, sorry, Gary. Uh, Gary's the Director of Portfolio Consulting at Wealth Enhancement Group. Uh, Peg's got the week off. We've been talking about, Gary, our seven market movers. We, we started with global economic growth. Our outlook there is moderately positive. Then we went to inflation, and our outlook there is moderately negative. Then we went to interest rates, and we determined we're neutral. But I'd ask you a question right before the break. I don't know if you finished saying what you wanted to say. If you did, we can move on to style and factor expectations. Or if you didn't and you had a thought you wanted to finish about interest rates, go ahead. Thanks, Bruce. Yeah, I guess I'll just close by saying our outlook on interest rates is neutral, as you mentioned, and that's based upon the fact that we expect rates to go higher uh, on the short end, uh, but not, but moderate on the longer end. So we will see some flattening of the yield curve, or we expect that, uh, but we do not expect you know, uh, a runaway uh, yield uh, scenario. And that's based upon the fact that we do expect inflation to subside in the second half of uh, this year. Okay, style factor. This is something that not everybody talks about. Sure, yeah. Our style factor uh, outlook is, is, is moderately positive. And let me explain what I mean by that. Kind of segueing off our interest rate forecast, uh, in a rising rate scenario, that's obviously going to impact different asset classes and sectors differently. We also know from a factor perspective, and I'll explain what we mean by factor, it's going to impact factors as differently as well. So factors are just another way to characterize or classify a stock or a, or a security based upon what drives its performance. So one factor could be how attractively valued that, uh, that asset is. Another factor that drives performance can be how small that business is, its, its, its market cap. Another factor could be its low volatility characteristic, its high quality characteristic, uh, its income characteristic. And what we do over time is we classify and analyze how these different 
styles and factors contribute to performance. And then we say, okay, in this type of scenario, a rising rate scenario with growth that's been robust and will stay above average, but it's going to come down, what style and factor are going to do well in this type of environment? And for anyone that's been watching the markets probably knows that we're going, we've probably had 10 years, 10 plus years where growth stocks have dramatically outperformed value stocks. And a large reason for that is because we've been in a low growth era and we've had low interest rates and we've had these secular growth stories, these technology stocks that have dominated returns. Well, looking forward in a, in a period where we expect rates to go higher and we're going to be, we're moving forward uh, in the recovery. So we have some cyclical uh, impacts going on. We expect value oriented stocks and cyclical stocks to do better in this type of scenario. We also expect from a, uh, a from a quality standpoint that as we move our way from the early mid stage to the mid to later stage of the business recovery, that's where quality as a factor is going to become that much more important. Because if you think back in March 2020, for the rest of the year, it was all about uh, re-rating from a value pers- uh, from a from a from a valuation perspective, right? The rising tide lifted all boats. And if you look at 2021, it was all about earnings growth, right? Earnings growth drove the markets in 2021. Looking forward in 2022, you have valuations near highs. You have um, earnings growth that's likely to subside, as I mentioned earlier. So it's going to be about the it's going to be about the fundamentals. We got to think about buying quality stocks, buying quality companies. So value and quality are going to be two of the most important factors looking forward. Um, so uh, moderately positive with regard to style factor expectations? Exactly, yeah. So we think that those factors are going to drive those particular the, – the, those factors are going to drive value stocks and high-quality stocks, but we're a little bit skeptical on the momentum stocks. You think about what a momentum stock is. The way we characterize or classify momentum stocks are those stocks that have done very well over the past 12 months. So what has done very well over the last 12 months? It's predominantly been growth stocks and technology stocks, some healthcare stocks that kind of rode the COVID wave. Are we in a different era where are those momentum stocks going to continue to do well? Does it make sense to continue investing in last year's winners? And we think that while we're not necessarily willing to bet against some of those stocks and some of those individual stocks performing poorly, we think there's a higher probability that you want to think about your expectations from a value and quality perspective. Now, there's two others that I didn't really talk about yet. That's size and low volatility. Small cap stocks do, did very, very well in the, uh, from right around uh, very, very early uh, in, the, in, in the recover from, from, from March 2020 for the next several months. When the market rebounded, they were also some of the hardest hit. But small, small caps also did very, very well uh, in November 2020 when the vaccine, first vaccine news was released. And they continued to do well up until around the end of the Q1 2021. And that's when we saw a shift back away from cyclicals back towards uh, secular growth stocks. We think as we move forward into 2022 and we see the cyclical trade reestablish itself, that could, that could bear well for, for, for small cap stocks. From a low volatility standpoint, the low vol sector got hit uh, particularly hard and didn't perform as well in the past. And when we think about low volatility sectors, we're thinking about 
uh, utilities. We're thinking about staples. We're thinking about REITs. Now, REITs did very, very well because they were beaten up very much in 2020. Uh, the other low-ball sectors, now, they have some very interest rate-sensitive components to them, and they tend to not uh, underperform in, in a rising rate scenario. So we have a kind of a benign or moderate outlook when it comes to the low-ball uh, characteristics. But really, just circling back and thinking about things from a value and quality perspective, I think those are the areas where you want to be uh, the most focused and pay the most attention to uh, and, and just be a little bit skeptical of the momentum stocks that did really, really well in the last 12 months. Okay, for folks that don't know, uh, REITs are real estate investment trusts. Uh, um, I, I, I know not everybody knows that term. Hey, Gary, let's shift to the fifth market mover, geographic expectations, and what do you see there? Absolutely. So we, uh, the U.S. has dramatically outperformed international markets for the better part of a decade. I think there was one year in 2017 where international modestly outperformed, and last year was no exception. Um, the, the S&P was up 28% last year. Um, you know, emer- the developed uh, MSCI EASE index was up around 15, and the emerging market index was was slightly negative. That's largely going to be driven by what's going on in the emerging markets and predominantly China. And we know that there's been a number of headwinds uh, overseas uh, stemming from China, slower growth, uh, regulatory crackdown, uh, a number of other issues as well. And that kind of infiltrated the rest of emerging markets. But it's not it's not uh, all or none when it comes to international. But we do like continue to believe that the U.S. is going to lead the way out of this pandemic. We have the had demonstrated uh, the most consistency, the most uh, reliability when it comes to our recovery. We've been the most uh, transparent when it comes to our messaging and what we're doing. And our central bank no doubtably got ahead uh, of the other banks uh, globally. So we've seen the recovery being driven from the U.S., but we've also seen the U.S. have much, much higher valuations. Uh, and if we look at the valuations uh, on a relative basis, uh, the U.S. is just much, much more expensive and has been more expensive relative to uh, developed international and, and especially relative to emerging international. So we have to think of things from a much, much longer time perspective. Uh, and as you pointed out in the very beginning of the show, Bruce, we don't know where the markets are going to go in the next 30 days or 60 days. But we do like to think we have a pretty good assessment of where markets are going on the next two to four years. And a lot of that stems from valuations. Uh, and we know that valuations have a tendency to revert to their, their long-term means. And right now, uh, on a relative basis, the U.S. is much, much more expensive uh, compared to international. So we want to have that focus uh, on international stocks uh, and not, not, not uh, ignore emerging markets just because of the problems that you're seeing today in China. I also think it's important to point out, as we think about this recovery from a cyclical perspective, as I mentioned, we expect rates to rise and that benefits cyclical companies. There's a lot more cyclical-oriented businesses, especially financials, when you look overseas relative to the U.S. The U.S. stock market is largely driven by technology stocks and what happens in the tech sector, where you go across the pond to Europe and you have a much higher component of financials uh, that will do better in a rising rate environment. So we have a moderately positive outlook, and what that means is we're, we, we still think U.S. Um, is going to uh, lead the way from an economic growth perspective, but then from a valuation perspective, we have to be very cognizant of what's going on, how relatively cheap international is, uh, and the fact that you know there is an emerging uh, middle market coming that's being serviced by Europe, being serviced by China, 
There's a tremendous growth story, long-run story that we certainly don't want to ignore. So we continue to focus our portfolios overseas as well, uh, but just with that kind of U.S.-centric mindset that, you know, the U.S. could be the driver uh, of the, the higher growth, at least in 2022. All right. The, the sixth market mover that you look at is alternatives or alts. Explain to listeners what that is and what you foresee there. Sure. So alternative investments can come in many shapes and forms. Um, an alternative can be uh, uh, anything from a, a hedge fund. Uh, and hedge funds have, you know, so many characteristics, uh, uh, possible uh, styles, everything from long, short, uh, arbitrage to multi-strategy. Um, so we we're also all, all, the other side of alternatives. Another big part of alternatives is going to be private investments. And private investments can be private equity. It can be private credit. Within private equity, you have uh, you have buyout. You have venture capital. Private credit can be sliced up into mul- multiple different areas. It can be distressed. Um, it could be direct lending. So, from a broad perspective, we look at alternatives as a different way to invest your money in non-traditional assets. And never in my career has it been more important to think about these non-traditional asset classes. And for many of the reasons that I I briefly touched upon earlier, if you think about how expensive equity assets are, as we talked about, relative to their own history, the the forward multiple on the S&P 500 is around 21 times earnings, right? That's notably higher than its long-term average. And even international, you're seeing equal to um, slightly higher valuations relative to their norms. Now, that's relatively cheap compared to bonds. Bonds are even more expensive because rates are so low. So you have this conundrum, stocks are expensive, equity, uh, uh, stocks are expensive, fixed income is expensive. Where am I supposed to put my money now? If you've been sitting on the sideline and you watch this market uh, go up as much as it has, you're probably wondering the same question. I don't want to put my money into bonds because I'm expecting rates to go higher this year. I don't want to put my money into stocks because we're expecting a correction. And everyone, you know, waits and waits and waits and waits for a market correction, and then it never seems to happen. But we do have reason to believe that volatility is going to go higher this year uh, based upon inflation, uh, based upon uh, a potential disruption overseas, uh, based upon the pandemic that we're still not out of the woods yet. So where do we put our money? We have to think about alternative asset allocation. So whether you invest in a a long term, you know, there's certain investments that are alternatives that are only available to to investors uh, of, of certain criteria, a credit that are accredited or qualified, but we also have a myriad of, of alternatives that come in more liquid vehicles that come in the, in the shape of a mutual fund uh, that you can buy uh, real estate, uh, which can be considered if it's private real estate can be an alternative investment. These are asset classes that historically demonstrate a very low correlation to stocks and bonds. And when you're creating a portfolio, that's ultimately what you want to think about. You want to say, what can I add to my portfolio that is not going to go up and down at the same time as stocks and bonds? Historically, we used to have a 60-40 portfolio, 60% equity, 40% bonds, and you could rely upon those bonds to offset equity volatility. It doesn't work that way when both stocks and bonds are overpriced. So we have to think about alternatives more closely and more carefully, and never before do I think it's more important to start adding some of these alternatives uh, into your portfolio. There's also hard assets. There's also, you know, commodities can be put into that uh, asset class. Uh, master limited partnerships that benefit from the energy trade. Uh, as I mentioned, hedge funds come in a variety of areas. Uh, and then there's even some other instruments that can be vaguely categorized uh, as alternatives, things like structured products that are debt instruments that are designed to offer uh, a return that's, that's uh, correlated with an underlying equity asset. These are all vehicles that we 
like to think about that offer a different risk return profile relative to uh, stocks and bonds. But because stocks and bonds are so expensive, it's so important to think about them now. So we look at that from a moderately positive outlook because you should be thinking about how can I diversify my portfolio right now when we expect volatility to go higher and we're struggling to find a good place to put our assets. And you have to think outside the box of the traditional 60-40 portfolio right now more than ever. Uh, the last market mover is taxes. You want to comment on that quickly? Sure. So, um, you know, a lot of the year, uh, 2021, uh, investor, investors were, were very concerned about higher taxes. Uh, it was you know, suggested that the capital, uh, capital gains tax was going to go higher. Uh, the corporate tax was going to go higher. Um, obviously, a lot has changed uh, since then. The, the Build Back Better plan uh, hit a wall late last year, and it's very uncertain whether or not that is going to go through. Um, you know, I'm not here to speculate on, on, on legislative uh, work that are, you know, yet to be completed. But, you know, for a lo- better part of last year, that was certainly uh, a, a cautionary headwind. But we consistently told our, uh, our, our investors that, you know, capital, higher capital gains rates don't necessarily mean lower returns. And we've done a number of studies and over previous periods where higher taxes or higher cap gains uh, rates were uh, implemented and the following six to 12 months were on average positive uh, for, for stocks. So we think that we, we put this as a neutral outlook because we still think that there's some possibility uh, that we could see some higher taxes, but we don't think it's gonna have the devastating impact to the equity market. I think that the, the tailwinds uh, behind uh, the, 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 the equity market in general more than outweigh the potential for slightly higher uh, taxes and it seems like some of the most draconian uh, prospects uh, of higher tax rates in terms of the corporate tax rates or, or raising the, you know, the, the, the top cap gains rate to the ordinary income rate, those seem to be off the table, at least for now. So we're pretty neutral on that, very aware of the impact, and it certainly grabs a lot of headlines. Gary and Denny, I got to tell you, I'm torn right now. Gary, the problem with this, this topic and you being so good at it is it hasn't left us much time for listeners' questions. I personally have five or six questions I would like to ask. We should almost do this show in two parts, part one and part two, and do another one just for questions. Danny, do we have anyone on the line or any really good texts that we well, want we ha- to squeeze in? Sure, Bruce. Uh, we have uh, some text messages. Let, let, let me uh, toss this one out here and see. And I know we have a couple minutes to go. Uh, Here's one. It says, my advisor recommended putting some money into an index-based life insurance product to utilize this tax-free growth as an asset class. Many of these products have floors and are so relatively safe. What are your thoughts? Gary, thoughts on uh, uh, index-invested life insurance? Yeah, it, that's, it's a pretty broad question, and it, it, it ha- I'd have to know more about the product itself and some of the characteristics and limitations. Some of those products uh, do uh, have some characteristics that I don't find as appealing. I think you can – there's obviously tax benefits associated with it, but if it doesn't match your own personal situation from a, from a time horizon perspective, uh, I'd be a little bit conscious. But it really comes down to the product. You know, are you paying commissions for that? Uh, are, you know, what, 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 are the, what are the underlying details? Uh, the devil is certainly in the details when it comes to index-based life insurance products. Uh, we offer, you know, we have similar products that have similar index-like characteristics and offer some of the same buffers uh, and, 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 and performance-like characteristics. 
but I'd have to know more about the, the product itself uh, and, and whether or not it was fitting uh, your personal tax situation. Yeah, I agree. Conceptually, it might make sense. It might work. But there's a lot of variables there, are a lot of reasons why it might not also be a good idea. Um, Danny, I, I, I'm going to just interject because I want to, um, Gary, we're, we're down in about two minutes. But everything we talked about today, what's the key takeaway for listeners? What do they need to know going forward in the 2022? All good information, but concise it down to what, what, what does this mean to investors? What does it mean to you running these portfolios for our clients? Well, looking forward, I think we're going to see more volatility. 2021, uh, we saw no greater than a 5% pullback, and there was only seven days that the market moved more than 2%. We're already seeing the, a reversal of that in the early days of, of, of 2022. So looking forward, I would expect higher volatility. Uh, I would expect much, much more modest returns uh, across equities. Uh, don't abandon fixed income just because of rising rates. Uh, studies have shown that even in rising rate markets, it pays off in the long run to maintain your fixed income allocation. Think about alternatives, as I mentioned, as a way to diversify your portfolio and just you know, keep an eye on inflation and, like we are. And we think that as bad as it is, uh, it could get slightly higher, but we believe that you know, the second half of the year uh, does look more promising based upon some early indications that we're looking at. We expect today's super high inflation to subside. And then all eyes on the Fed and what they do with their tapering uh, of their bond purchases uh, and, and projected rate hikes. Right now, roughly three rate hikes. Uh, a lot could change uh, between now and the end of the year when it comes to how many they actually implement. And Gary, really, really, really quickly, is it fair to say that so many of these economic things, these market movers, at the end of the day are still impacted by the fact that we still have COVID and we're not through the pandemic? And if we get back to a new normal, it's going to influence all this stuff? It, it absolutely it absolutely matters, but you know what is the new normal? I definitely think we're in a different uh, situation, no matter what. Right. Uh, but I think I think it's going to continue to impact it. Luckily, the economic responses have been less and less for each new variant. Uh, the biggest problem now, of course, is just people going to work and the late the, the short term labor shortages. But I don't think we're going to see the same type of mandated restrictions that we saw earlier on. So. We can't forget about it. It's very real. We're going to have disruptions. We're going to have impacts to, to retail like we saw uh, in, in December of last year. Uh, but we, we, we just cannot Out of time again, Gary. I'm sorry. Sure. I'm sorry. Yes, indeed. If you have a question, the midweek, 888-6-ADVICE or wealthenhancement.com. Your money at wealthenhancement.com. We'll see you back here next week. <laughs> 